Hello everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Selection Series, where myself and guests select a bunch of films to watch and discuss the contents within. This episode's theme is based around the most wonderful time of the year, I won't sing again I promise, uh, Christmas, and we have three drastically differing films in our stocking of cinema to discuss. Joining me today once again is the Dudley Moore to my Will Ferrell elf, it's the wonderful Rachel. Hello Liam. <laughs> I really wrote that about 30 seconds ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, do I understand that? Probably not, um, but it's all good. So yeah, there's a, a Dudley Moore elf Christmas film, and then there's the Will Ferrell elf Christmas film. Ah, uh, okay, right, we'll have to check out. Uh, so you may have noticed that I started with Rachel there, because sadly, it's just the two of us for this episode. Charlie messaged me earlier in the week to say he was unwell, and therefore wouldn't be able to make the episode. And we're really sad about that because, you know, Charlie brings a, a whole level of dynamic that uh, myself and Rachel possibly don't have. Yeah, he's going to be missed. But we're going to soldier on and we are going to discuss his film selection, which was a surprisingly brilliant one. <laughs> but before all that, Rachel, how are you? Uh, yeah, no, I'm fine, thank you. Looking forward to Christmas. Um, mm. So it's nice to do this episode so we can feel proper Christmassy in the run-up to that most special of days. Yes. Um, and yeah, I just want to quickly say I hope Charlie gets better soon. Um, we're very sorry that he can't be here today. And yeah, we're definitely going to miss all his input and all his witticisms in discussing mm. the films. Because yeah, his pick in particular, I think hearing Charlie's take on that would have been pretty awesome. But yeah, hopefully next time. We would have delayed this episode to give him half a chance, but it's already December and it's not long until Christmas now. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's been a bit hectic. Obviously, you've been recording episodes on Scavenger's Horde on The Mandalorian, so you've been quite busy. And then we've both got a, a quiz that we're doing uh, in a week's time. So it's it's been fun. It's been a really busy time and it's actually felt a bit more Christmassy for me this year because a lot of people were going all in on it, you know, and the shops didn't have all the Christmas stock in in September, which would have ruined everything. But there we go. <laughs> right. So as discussed at the top of the episode, we have three films that we're going to discuss in this single episode. A couple of intermissions. That shouldn't take too long, and we'll break up the flow of things, obviously. But there's no quiz, because I ran out of time. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you'd have been treated... I did contemplate uh, doing a quiz on badly translated song lyrics from famous Christmas songs. But oh god, then... I'm so glad you didn't do that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so am I. It takes far too long to set up. Yeah, no, that would have been horrible. I would have just got like zero, and I'd have just been like, Liam, don't, don't kill me like this. <laughs> please stop, I'm already dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just cease the humiliation, please. <laughs> I don't think we ultimately decided on an order. I think in our little group chat, I mentioned an order, but I can't remember what that order was. Should we go with Charlie's one first? <laughs> Yes, let's do that. Okay, so we'll start with Charlie's pick, and it's wonderful. Rachel, would you like to introduce it? So yeah, Charlie's pick is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which is an American film from 1964, directed by Nicholas Webster. It's hard to know where to begin with Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Um, I'd say the title is somewhat misleading, because there's very little in the way of conquering that goes on. Basically, the plot is that Santa Claus is kidnapped by the Martians... The reasons are slightly Byzantine, so I can't <laughs> quite explain why they kidnap him, but it's something to do with their children becoming obsessed with Earth TV. 
be in Earth culture. There's just lots of hijinks. And honestly, I found it all kind of adorable. It's clearly bad. It's not a good film. But it was curiously innocent in a way that I appreciated. So yeah, it's like dumb. But I feel like if you showed it to a four-year-old, they could easily be quite entranced in a non-ironic way. Let's put it that way. What did you think, Liam? I absolutely adored it. I <laughs> had this massive beam on my face for oh. about 30 minutes after the film because, as you said, it is it's not very well made. It's got the budget of about 47 pence. Um, and the editing is, is just so, so bad. And it uses stock news footage here, there, and everywhere. And oh, I'll get on to some of the finer details in a minute, but this film is rated 2.7 out of 10 on IMDb, and I'm going to defend it. I'm going to defend this right now. It is not a 2.7 film in no. any way, shape, or form. Like, no, no, no. The actors really go all in. They must know how silly this film is, but do they care? Do they heck? Um, <laughs> if you paid £5 to see this as a panto in your local village hall, you would forgive all of its misgivings. You would forgive the people in green paint. You would forgive the plastic sets that fall apart. <laughs> you would even forgive the guy dressed as a polar bear. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> but this film, yeah, it's just so silly. It's yeah. just so silly. So the, the plot is that uh, they're worried about the children that are getting too addicted to Earth TV. So they go and see the Grand Martian, who I believe is called Kokum or Chochum. I, I, I didn't Don't really... ask me any of the names. Yeah. None of them yeah, suck yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. So he says that the because the children couldn't be children, because they were basically forced to be adults from a young age, they've started rebelling, and therefore they should be children. And it's it's December on Earth, and that's because Father Christmas is here. They should go and get Father Christmas to make them children again. And so begins the most hilarious hijinks in a sort of semi-serious tone. Um, but then we're, we're introduced to these characters. You've got uh, Kima, who is the king of the Martians, K-I-M-A-R, and his uh, children are Bomar, his boy, and Gimar, his girl, because it's clearly the George Lucas school of naming characters, the boy Martian and the girl Martian. <laughs> I hadn't I believe... registered that, but that is so true. That's exactly yes. what they did. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. One little aside, uh, I didn't realise this, but this is the first film ever to feature a Mrs. Santa Claus. Really? Yes. Wow, yes. I'm shocked it took that long. Well, it's feminist, basically, then. Yeah, essentially. Um... Although, actually, I've got to say this now. Like, she's depicted in a very sexist way. <laughs> Early on, there's a joke along the lines of, um, like, Mrs. Claus has just been there yabbering on. And then she goes out of frame, and then Santa Claus makes a joke about, oh, it's the quietest she's ever been. <laughs> yeah. When she's like frozen that. with the Yes, when the she's frozen. Gun. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, my gosh. That is, it's funny. Uh, yeah. And he goes, oh, that's the quietest you've ever been. Um, but he's, like, almost quite sad about it. He's like, oh, I miss her moaning at me. <laughs> sort of look. 
true um, rela- it's a true relationship very it, realistic it, well maybe a true relationship about 50 years in the making so. <laughs> yes <laughs> like i said the the film's budget isn't massive the martians themselves i showed a still to my work colleagues because I, I like to spoil what I'm doing now. Um, and I showed a still to them, and they just burst out laughing. And I think that's the perfect way of doing it. Because the, the Martians themselves are dressed up in green garb. They've got little plastic helmets with the visors still attached to the top. They've got some gold piping. They've got two little antennas, which if you see in certain scenes, bend certain ways, so they clearly drop the helmet at some point. And then they cut back and it's bent the other way. Yeah, they're covered in green paint. <laughs> Although some better than others, I presume because they were running out of paint over yeah. certain scenes because they were certainly running out at different points of the film. <laughs> uh, Liam, can I present a theory to you about why I think that we both have positive feelings towards this film? Go for it. Because we're both fans of classic Doctor Who and the production values in this film are equivalent to 1960s Doctor Who. Like, if honestly, if you were to put like the makeup and the props and stuff in this episode alongside the makeup and the props from, say, The Keys of Marinus, <laughs> which is a Doctor Who episode from 1965, I think, with yeah. William Hartnell, basically, the first Doctor, they'd be about the same. And Liam and I both sincerely, unironically enjoy that era of Doctor Who. So, yeah, if you have that, like, capacity built into you through, like, years of preparation and training yourself through watching these episodes, then you can basically accept pretty much anything. The only thing in this that I could not accept at face value was the bloody polar bear, because it was so shoddy. (laughs) It was... Oh, guys. And it's also pointless. Like, it's just there for, like, a scare moment. And it serves literally no function in the wider plot, so it just reads completely bizarre. But again, it's kind of cute because of how short he is. It is. And I'm going to have to look it up because the actor in The Polar Bear, I think, was like a proper actor (laughs) and is uncredited in it. So I'm currently Googling on Wikipedia. The whole Doctor Who vibe is definitely there. I mean, you also have the uh, robot Torg that they pull out of the Martian ship. Just a guy in a bunch of cardboard boxes <laughs> walking towards. I'm sorry. It's just I'm laughing at it, but I I'm I'm laughing at it in a good way. I think you're laughing with it, Liam. Yeah, you're exactly. Laughing with it. Uh, it's an actor called Gene Lindsay, which when I was googling had like quite the career in TV. I think. Um, yeah. yeah, it looks like he was in Dark Shadows, which is a um, gothic soap opera from the seventies. Uh, I mean, everyone's got to start somewhere. I think, yeah, so a lot of these actors were from Broadway and that added a certain vibe. We mentioned this in our previous episodes with Reanimator. But whereas I think with Reanimator, certain actors didn't quite reach the level what they were aiming for, I think all of these actors were like, well, let's just act as though this is a silly little play. And I think that's why it works so well. So you've got uh, Leonard Hicks as Kimar and John Call, who is just fantastically charming as Santa Claus. And he's perfect because he's just that jolly little granddad that sits in the background and says, no, no, children, we mustn't be naughty and this, that and the other. Oh, I don't think this evil Martian's trying to kill us. I'm sure he's done this as a mistake. Uh, (laughs) Which... 
it's just genuinely charming because you're like you're being you're being thick mate but i love it um, yes and there's just like random spots where they'll just burst out laughing him and the two human oh i forget that part um so two human children are kidnapped by the martians because they don't know who the real santa claus is because when they first arrive on earth of course it's december and there are a bunch of people that are dressed up as father christmas everywhere they're all like what the hell who's the real one so then they land next to the two children who happen to know where the real father christmas lives that's when the next level of hijinks happens this reminds me of a film that i absolutely adore called a town called panic which just seems to be one set piece after another in a row and they're getting more and more madcap as it goes along but it's brilliant and they had these ideas they just threw them all in some sort of sensible-ish order and i love it i love it and people are gonna be like liam you're just chatting nonsense now but it's really hard to describe what you should do people is go and look it up because it's on public domain i mean it is everywhere this film (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's most famous for um it being like having a riff track on Mystery Science Theater. I haven't listened to the riff track, and to be honest, I don't plan to, so I really don't enjoy riff tracks. Because <laughs> yeah, like I-, I enjoy like watching movies and talking about them after I've seen them. I don't enjoy other people talking over movies unless it's a commentary like by like an academic or someone involved with the film. Mm. Like, but obviously, riff tracks are really popular, so I know that's just my opinion. And yeah, I, f- I don't know. I feel like it's kind of just a bit mean-spirited to just, like, rip into the movie, you know? Because I feel like it's quite sweet, you know? To me, it's like the equivalent of, like, kicking a puppy or something. It really is. Because I don't know if they release this as, like, a genuine attempt at a big blockbustery type film. I mean... I th- oh, no, I th- they did not. No. 100% not. And, yeah. and to me, it is, it is essentially a kid's film. When you look up the IMDb comments on this film it's full of people saying i love this as a kid i thought it was amazing and sometimes you just gotta forgive a film for that because it definitely has a, a very tv movie film apparently it's been picked up by comedy central was put on comedy central back in 1991 i think and it's been on there every year ever since because people just love watching and i really think that although the film was slammed by critics because you know these sorts of films always are slammed by critics this is essentially the kind of on christmas day 10 a.m type of thing that like my granddad would make us watch (laughs) so whenever we went round to my granddad arthur he would have all these ridiculously silly films he would watch i think there was one called the moray that i remember quite vividly because it was just so so bad but yeah this was the sort of film that he would put onto the tv on channel four or something and it'd be on at 10 o'clock on christmas day or boxing day i'd say more like 8 a.m i feel like 10 a.m is much more prime time than this (laughs) but this is the sort of thing that he would watch and i think that's the other side of the attachment that i have to this film because it's like that is the sort of stuff i would have watched as a kid at christmas although i'd never seen this film before 
And yeah. I'm really I'm really glad Charlie introduced it to us because I'm really glad I saw it because I'm gonna make everybody watch this damn film. Yeah, well you can raise um, your little boy on it now, Liam. You can like make him think that this is like a genuine work of art and like have him be the person in the future who's like, Have you seen Santa Claus Conquers the Martian? <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly how Arthur's going to speak, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure he is. I'm really sure he is. I mean, he's probably going to find it funny because of the the polar bear in the suit, and he's going (laughs) to find that hysterical. I think also, going back to the actors, well, there's two certain actors that I want to bring up, uh, and that's Bill McCutcheon, who plays Dropo. Now, he's the dumb-witted... Uh, Martian that starts with quite a funny gag actually uh, Kimar walks in on him and he says Dropo why are you sleeping on the job and he goes oh I'm not sleeping on the job I'm just practicing because I haven't been sleeping at night and I was trying to remember how to sleep <laughs> and I thought <laughs> that is really funny actually <laughs> I genuinely like that joke because it had a very Sergeant Bilko type joke to it and I just thought to myself wow this is the type of thing that maybe Jim Carrey would do if this was ever to be remade. Then I found out, when doing research on the film after watching it, that there was an attempt in 2002 to get this remade with Jim Carrey as Tropo. I, I, I thought that I would have been perfect, to be honest. It, like, it would have been. That is literally perfect casting. And I'm he, very curious about what the tone would have been like of that, you know, like whether it would have just been like complete parody. <laughs> or like they would have tried to keep like have a little bit of heart to it yeah, yeah. that would be so interesting because there is also a genuine heart to this film there's a couple of scenes where John Cole as Santa Claus he sits there and they're doing some mass manufacturing on Mars and he has a sort of oh, I don't really like this because I like making things by hand and that's where most of the joy of making presents for Christmas comes from. And yeah, I mean, listening to that in 2020, when I see kids getting video games like Call of Duty for Christmas and Xboxes, I'm a bit like, you know, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man yelling at a cloud here. And I'm like, no, I... I... Just give them Santa Claus Conquers the Martians instead. (laughs) No, I mean, having a toddler... (laughs) I wouldn't imagine giving him something like that. He wants to throw bricks down the stairs and he wants to like uh, a present. Uh, he got he got some stacking rings and he likes stacking rings and doing things like that. And I was like, yeah, actually, it is kind of sad that we're moving on to mass manufactured things rather than these handmade wooden toys that my kid absolutely adores. And yeah, yeah I thought, oh, that, that's quite sweet. And but it is still people in face paint, so it's. I mean, it, it's very silly. But the other actor I want to bring up is Vincent Beck, who plays the villain Voldar. Now, initially, the first half of the film, and I feel like this fits the film. The first half of the film, he's quite angry and he's quite menacing, but in a wily e. coyote type of way. If he was a real coyote, um, but after quite possibly the best fight scene I have ever seen in my life, which is 90 seconds of an actor basically trying to headbutt a camera and the biff-bang smash of Adam West type, uh, he turns into this moustache-twirling, hammy, over-the-top villain 
with the most convoluted plan in history. And I love it. <laughs> and he's foiled by a bunch of children firing toys and bubbles at him whilst Father Christmas is sat in the corner laughing hysterically. And I'm like, this is just the best. <laughs> it's beautiful. This is some Bugsy Malone shit right here. <laughs> and I think that just, yeah, it just sums it up. And go and watch it, guys. Just go and watch it. That's all all I really want to say on the film is yeah. go there's there's YouTube. There's an eighty one minute version. The version we watched was sixty nine minutes. I, I find it hard to believe there's an additional twelve minutes of this film, but apparently there is. So there may be scenes that people will watch on YouTube and say, Oh, why didn't you talk about this? Because it just wasn't on the version we watched, but because it's public domain, there are various incarnations of it of varying quality, apparently. So, yeah, go watch it. And thank you, Charlie, because it was genuinely hysterical to watch. I know he calls himself the connoisseur of crap, but he has brought us a fine Merlot from Chateau Daldi. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, it was really charming. Thank you, Charlie. It was a really good pick. Right, so we're going to move on to our first intermission. And the whole reason I've picked this intermission is because it, it leads nicely into our second film that I've decided what order to go with. So, Rachel, how would you describe a Christmas film? Uh, a Christmas film? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, a film set at Christmas... A film that has overtly Christmassy plot elements. So, like, it might involve trying to, like, buy a particular present. It might involve going to meet Father Christmas. But it might involve, like, a Christmas celebration. You know, something like that. There's flexibility, but I feel it has to meet one of those criteria. At least one of those criteria. And it can't just be say at Christmas. I hate yeah. to say it. Like, so I, I don't know if this is leading to the whole Die Hard is a Christmas movie thing. No, but... I was going to go Iron Man 3 because everyone's okay. sick of the Die Hard debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please don't do that. I haven't even seen Die Hard or Iron Man 3 for that matter. So. No, uh, I mean, you're not, you're not missing much with Iron okay. Man 3. But, I mean, there is a debate and you get films that, that are set at Christmas that I wouldn't say are Christmas films. Like, your Shane Black's set every film at Christmas, um, and Iron Man 3 is set at Christmas, and I wouldn't say that's a Christmas film whatsoever. That is a Marvel Iron Man film that just happens to have some Christmas trees in the background, and the occasional Christmas song, I think, and a massive teddy bear at one point as a present. But, yeah, I don't know. For me... I don't think a Christmas film really needs to be set at Christmas either. Okay. Um, I would say that it's more a, a feeling type thing because I know Home Alone would be set at Christmas, but even that I wouldn't class as a Christmas film. But if you had a vibe of Christmas, a celebration that wasn't in December, it was the wanting to get home to see your family and things like that, but it was set during, say, Thanksgiving, I would say that's more a Christmas film to me rather than Die Hard. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that that's ultimately what I would say is a Christmas film. 
So I was actually going to say throw it open to our listeners because uh, I quite like to hear people's opinions on this. So a lot of people follow me on the Facebook, Instagram, and the Twitter. Um, so, you know, let us know what would you define as a Christmas film? Because I know a bunch of you called me an idiot and said that Die Hard was definitely a Christmas film. But what other films would you say that aren't traditionally Christmas films that could be classed as Christmas films? I mean... Yeah, some people would also say the horror film Krampus is technically a Christmas film. I'm like, no, I'm not going for that. Yeah, no, I have to disagree with that as well. (laughs) So the whole reason I had that little segment there is because we're moving on to a film that, I don't know, wasn't quite a Christmas film for me, but... I would definitely still watch it at Christmas because I think it's it's fantastic. And that's the film Tokyo Godfathers, which was made in 2003 and directed by Satoshi Kon. How do I describe this film? Um, so the film itself is a bit convoluted, but it's three homeless people who have formed some sort of pseudo-family called Jin... Hannah and Miyuki, they find a baby in the trash on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, it's never quite clear and the three of them decide that they're going to return this baby to its parents and find out why the baby was abandoned. And they go on the most extraordinary journey of self-discovery healing and I don't know about you Rachel but I absolutely was blown away. I expected this film to be one thing, and it just turns into something completely different. Yeah. What did What did you think of it? Uh, yeah, no, I really love it. Um, I've seen it before. I know it was new to you, Liam. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is also one of my favourite directors. Um, it's one of my favourite filmy memories associated with Liam is showing him Paprika for the first time, <laughs> which he found completely freaky and messed up and disturbing, which was very entertaining for me um and paprika is by the same director as tokyo godfathers and i love both movies but i'd say tokyo godfathers is a much much more accessible film and yeah less likely to give people nightmares so that's all good and yeah no i love it and i think for me a big part of what is interesting is because it's a window into how christmas is perceived in a different culture because obviously japan is not a christian nation by any means there are some christians there but it's a tiny tiny minority and it's not pervasive in the culture like it is in britain or america and yeah it's just interesting because it's so deeply irreverent towards christianity in general and that's just the starting point really because the film starts on christmas day i believe um which is when they're essentially being treated to like the christmas story thanks to like a god how would you call it like a missionary organization or something yeah. that's yeah, put, put so. on like a soup kitchen for the homeless basically at christmas and none of them none of the people getting the food from this organization are actually christian they're just like there for the food basically and they're having to sit through this whole show and then yeah it's just fascinating to me because there is lots of reference to like god and like some sort of belief system but it's not the belief in like all the aspects of Christmas that we think of. So yeah, what did you think about that in terms of seeing it fr- seeing it as Christmas through the lens of a different culture, Liam? I think that was 
a really interesting aspect for me because I've only ever really known two types of Christmas. The traditional sort of Western Christian society type of Christmas, which you and I presumably both grew up on, going to sing carols when you're a school child and having family over and doing the turkey dinner and all the trimmings and the opening of presents. And I was also introduced to a friend's Polish Christmas a few years ago, and that was completely different. It was like a meal and they would set out plates for people that weren't going to be there just in case they turned up. It was all about being together and sort of breaking this uh, cracker type thing and hugging and saying, you know, it's great to have you here and all sorts. So having a different view on Christmas was quite interesting. I found Hannah's character was more deeply focused on Christmas and how to do respect its traditions and things like that. To listen to her discuss the Christmas traditions and wanting the baby Kyoko to have a very nice Christmas memory because she doesn't want her Christmas to be ruined. But the other two are sort of a bit more blasé about Christmas. That was quite interesting to see as well because I've grown up around a lot of people who absolutely adore Christmas. And I've not seen too many people that are just like, oh, it's Christmas again. Which is a shame. You don't want people to feel like that. But yeah, yeah. But I think in Japan, it's because it is a purely secular holiday. Like mm. there's none of that attachment to like the religious significance. And obviously, I know in Europe and even America, to a different extent, we're becoming increasingly secular. So it's not as much a religious holiday here either. But it's very, very deeply ingrained. Whereas I feel like in Japan, it's perhaps only become part of the like culture for like the last definitely in the 20th century you know i doubt very much that there were celebrations of christmas in 19th century japan even Hmm. um so it doesn't have these like hundreds of years of like build up and reverence that we have and all the traditions associated with christmas are completely different so it's not treated as a family holiday for example in the same way although it is interesting that in this film there is a big big emphasis on family but it's very much on non-traditional families because, yeah, the three homeless people who are our heroes, they're, they're, like Liam said, they're a loosely formed family. And yeah, like that's probably the best part of the whole film, the dynamic between them, because they're, they're radically different people and they sometimes rub against each other in like quite an abrasive way. But there's that real like strength there's like these really strong bonds between them and this real love and affection that they all share. And it's really beautiful how these wildly different people come together like that. I also find it quite interesting uh, because you were saying there that Christmas isn't more of a familial thing over in Japan, but the big part of this film, which is set at Christmas is the fact that the families are coming together and ultimately they're all reunited with their and i say this in bunny rabbit is real families at one point Jin, who's desperate to see his daughter also called kyoko he runs into her obviously spoiling this for the record uh miyuku runs into her father who she had previously run away from and hannah uh, is reunited with a woman that she calls mother at the place she used to work as a drag queen and 
that for me, I think, was possibly the most touching aspect of the film because they're they are a family, but then they're like, oh, you know, we've only really got each other, and we all we all say we hate each other, but we secretly love each other, and yeah. then they're they're gradually reintroduced to the things that they thought they'd lost previously, including baby Kyoko being reunited with her real parents after possibly the most stressful 15 minutes of film I have watched since Gravity. Yeah, no, that finale in the film is amazing. It's yeah. so well done. I mean, it was fantastically well done. I don't know about you, but whilst the, the plot is convoluted and it twists and turns all over the place, you're never bored, are you? No. Because you're, you're always wanting to know what that next thing is. And it's not a massively long film. It's 90 minutes, but... It flew by for me. Which... No, it's really fast-paced. And, yeah, like, it, it's just really... And it's also just, like, as a piece of art, it's beautifully well done. Like, the quality of the animation is superb. Like, um, that's why a big part of why I love Satoshi Kon's film so much, because I feel like the only other anime films to come close in terms of the quality of the animation are the Studio Ghibli films. And they're, like, top-tier works of art for me because yeah it's just incredible stuff that's done i i feel like it's also really nice use of animation because of all satoshi Kon's films this one is probably the most grounded in terms of you could imagine a live action version of tokyo godfathers you know and it wouldn't like require like acres and acres of cgi to pull it off essentially you know like it's a relatively grounded film but this animation is used to really good effect because there's lots of moments where like expressions are caricatured, for example, especially on Jin and Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> there's like these wild faces that they give, and yeah, it's just this great physical comedy. And just to go back to the whole family business, I think it's interesting because while it is true that in Japan Christmas isn't treated as a family holiday in the same way it is here, obviously people are aware of how Christmas is celebrated elsewhere Hmm. you know so I absolutely think there's a big dollop of self-awareness in the fact that this is a Christmas film that deals with families like and it's a choice that's made because they know that in many places all over the world Christmas is a family holiday and they start with the nativity story don't they you know showing baby Jesus yeah so and I think that's really like the coda to the whole thing isn't it you know this idea of like the like baby in a manger with its family and then the whole film is asking questions about who is your family and what does it mean to have a family and i felt it did that with some really nice complexity because while in each case they do show these reunions with the real again in bunny is family that isn't like the end destination really for any of the characters apart from potentially Miyuki, who at the very end of the film is reunited with the father who she <laughs> apparently stabbed, um, which is yeah quite the history. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for Jin and Hannah, for example, they don't end the film with their former families. They end the film together on the verge of being asked to be godparents to Kyoko. In my head, they stay together as a little unit. You know, they're basically husband and wife in the context of this story. You know, they're like a bickering couple and yeah. it's beautiful. And yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen with Miyuki, but I I felt that it was a really nice note to end on because there's a real arc for her throughout the film where she starts off very embittered and hopeless because she feels like she's done something unforgivable and she just can't go back, essentially. 
and they don't give a huge amount of screen time to it but they give you just enough to follow what happened in her past and so like you realize that there was a family argument over a cat and she stabbed her father in like a peak of like adolescent anger and then she ran away because obviously she was frightened by what she'd done and thought there was no way her parents would want her back and she became homeless but then in the course of the film she sees her father in another train and he tries to reach her and then her father puts an ad in the newspaper saying that the cats come back to the house you know and obviously that's not a clearly explained message but the implication is clear that the cats come back we want you to come home too and then you see from her reaction that she wants that you know she wants to have that life back and i think at the very end the implication is she probably will go back to her actual family and i think that makes sense because she's a literal child whereas mm-hmm. jin and hannah are adults and they're they're obviously living their own lives in a way that Miyuki isn't yet. Though it's also very important to mention that this is a film basically composed of wild coincidences. Yes. And like t- bizarre turns of fate, basically. Like everyone is connected in this film. And I'm not even joking. And yeah, could you explain some of that, like interconnection? The first connection they discover that the parents they they find some photos that the who they perceive to be the parents shall we say own this uh, house in front of a building thing that ultimately Jin lost a lot of money for who the three of them run into a man that is about to be run over by his car who happens to be i believe a mob boss and the mob boss is uh, going to his daughter's wedding who is also called Kyoko uh, and is marrying the man that Jin lost a lot of money to. Later on, by pure coincidence, when Jin goes missing, possibly the hardest bit to watch off the film, which uh, where he gets beaten up by a bunch of rich people, him and an elderly gentleman he finds on the floor, uh, get beaten up. Jin runs into a person dressed as a literal angel as he lays there, he thinks he's dying, who happens to work at the club that Hannah is working at, <laughs> used to work at. So they run into each other. But whilst they were looking for Jin... Hannah and Muku took a cab who had a driver in it that Hannah was flirting with because they didn't have enough cab fare. And ultimately he was like, fine, just give me what you got. Sort of thing. <laughs> and then they run into him later on in the finale where they, they need his car to chase after a van. There are some other connections. So yeah, the old man has has the a winning lottery ticket that turns up later on. Hannah and Miyuku run into the old man as he's picked up as he's died. And then just before Hannah has to go to the hospital, Jin points out that he's got 30,000 yen for his daughter whenever he runs into her. So then they go to the hospital because Hannah has a bad reaction to something, possibly because she's starving and stuff like that. He has to pay the 30,000 yen to pay for a hospital treatment. But as he's doing that, his daughter, who happens to be a nurse at the hospital, who we briefly see with Miyuki, she then says, oh, hello, it's your daughter, (laughs) who also happens to be called Kyoko. Yeah, it's just all these little connections. And it's ultimately saying how everybody is connected in some way. You've got that six degrees of separation from anybody else on the planet. I personally quite liked it. It can be a bit much for people, I reckon. No, exactly. I think it's not trying to be realistic by any means. Mm. It's very much, yeah, like an allegory for like the miraculous nature of coincidence. 
you know, and how you don't necessarily need like, actual divine intervention for these miracles to happen. Apart from maybe the last one. <laughs> yeah. So. That was beautiful. Oh my god, I love that scene so yes. much. Yes, the final very stressful 15 minutes of the film, our heroes are again split up after an argument, and Jin uh, finds who he thinks uh, is the father of the baby, starts slapping him and saying, why the hell did you abandon this baby, you dickhead? Where it's suddenly discovered that that's not the real father. Whilst this is going on, Hannah and Miyuki find a woman who is about to commit suicide on a bridge and discover that it's who they think is the mother. And then side by side, we discover they're giving the baby back to who they think is the mother. And we then find out that it's not the real mother, and she has snatched Kyoko from the hospital. And Jin then desperately has to find the other two to say, where's this baby? It's not the real mother, in quite possibly one of the most comedic scenes I've ever seen, because he's desperately trying to breathe, because he hasn't ridden a bike in X amount of years. He used to work at a bike shop, and he's there like, can't breathe, and he's trying to mime everything in, like, very overly gesticulated manner and yeah then they essentially chase the mother where everyone like nearly dies every 30 seconds and you've got the the cab driver from earlier in the film with the other two in the cab whilst Jin is riding a bike chasing after the woman who has stolen a van and that bit was very funny because she steals a van the guy runs to the copper who says she stole my van and then Jin nicks the copper's bike. <laughs> yeah, it's like Charlie Chaplin-esque comedy, yeah, isn't it? Goes, it's great. Hang on, he's stolen my bike, thief. And then <laughs> Hannah and Miyuki run past saying, yes, the woman's a thief, she snatched a baby. What is this film at this point? The plot structure of the film is really strange. So just going into sort of a little screenwriting aside here, apologies. There's a traditional way of writing a script, which is... You have your beginning, opening third, and then there's a moment called the page 17 moment, which kicks the plot on, which in this case would be the baby being found. And then all through the two thirds, you would have a high point and a low point. Then you have your finale, which is the turning point of the film, usually either the lowest of the low or suddenly a very high, kicks off the final third, and then you have your ending. This film, I felt like, did that about five times within it. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's almost like each character has their own movie in this film. essentially, that's how I feel it was. And it all ties up very neatly at the end. We get to the rooftop, and so Sushiko is atop of the building with Kyoko. Uh, She's on the edge, and she's going to jump. Miyuki is there saying, for the love of God, don't. The baby needs to go back to its parents, starts to talk her and then catches her as they try to jump. Then she slips and Jin grabs them because they've just run up the top of these stairs. But then Kyoko starts to fall, uh, falls out of Sachoko's hands and Hannah decides, right, I'm off, over the edge, grabs the baby, misses the first ledge, goes, oh, bugger, (laughs) slips down, catches hold of something, says... Oh no, I'm still alive. Looks like she's about to fall to her death. And then a massive gust of wind comes over, floats up the thing she's hanging on to, and she floats very gently down to the floor. And then we have a a transition into the baby being handed back to the parents. 
And yeah. it's just like, oh, wow, that is so beautiful to end after quite possibly, like I said earlier, the most stressful 15 minutes since Gravity. I feel it's the perfect <laughs> ending for Hannah as well, yeah. because obviously Hannah has always longed to be a mother. You know, she says that several times in the film. And she's usually the one who takes the most responsibility for Kyoko. You know, she's usually mm. the one carrying her, like, fretting about where the next, like, dose of milk is going to come from, so on, so on and so forth. And I feel like at the end, that is, like, the ultimate demonstration that this woman is a mother, basically. You know, the fact that she's so completely and utterly selfless in that moment. You know, that she, like, leaps after that child without any thought to her own, like, well-being, essentially. You know, because she's just all about protecting that baby. And that's why that, like, good fortune comes gusting her way, I think, you know, and saves both of them. Because it's... The film is basically, like, a depiction of an ideal universe where like things always work out for the best where people have good intentions and work to love and protect each other because yeah like fate is helping these people because it recognizes that they're good people who are trying to do the right thing it is i also think that it fits hannah's character because she is or she has the most faith throughout the film and therefore she gets what we would dub the divine intervention of the wind catching her at that point which is very nicely juxtaposed with Jin's moment where he's laying there dying and he he sees what he think is a, he thinks is an angel who happens to be a drag queen and she <laughs> says uh, oh do you want my magic or do you want an ambulance sort of thing and Jin's there and he's like uh kind of want an ambulance you know <laughs> she's like you dick <laughs> oh, that oh was really funny because I thought oh is this gonna be like a like a magical angel that's come to save them? Because I thought, well, at this point, I've watched enough anime to know that I can't rule anything out at this point, um, and it turns out to be a real person who's <laughs> just like you, dick. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I must say, I also appreciated the depiction of Sashiko. You know, mm. the woman who like kidnaps Kyoko and is heavily yeah. involved with the big climax at the end. Because she's obviously severely mentally ill in the film. And I felt like it was a relatively sympathetic portrayal. Like, she's doing horrible things. But you, it's very clear to the viewer that this is a woman who's, like, suffered, like, a horrendous ordeal because she lost her own child. And, like, it helps you understand her, even though you obviously don't... And even though you're not making excuses for what she's done, because it's obviously horrible to kidnap someone's child, yeah. you can understand why she did it. And I thought it was so touching at the end where I think you get her perspective very briefly where like she's holding the baby and she's obviously about to jump or on the verge of slipping and the baby like mouths to her, I want to go home or words to that effect. And that's what breaks it for her, you know, her getting that message from the baby. So obviously the baby isn't literally speaking, but it's almost like that's her conscience breaking through and saying that to her. And yeah, that struck me as very powerful. It really is. I just really love the movie. And yeah, if anyone listening, like, oh God, I'm trying to imagine how this discussion would sound to someone who hasn't seen the film. So I feel like it's a very complicated <laughs> story, you know, yeah. with all the different like moving pieces. But yeah, even if you didn't really follow this discussion, I hope that you're curious enough to go and watch the film for yourself because it is really good. And yeah, more people need to see it. I know I've just spoiled the entire film for you, but that's <laughs> what this podcast is. Yeah, I feel like at least the next film we're going to discuss is one that hopefully most people will have seen. So, yes. yeah, no excuses uh, for that one. Which is? So it is The Muppet Christmas Carol, 
which is directed by Brian Henson, the son of Jim, who needs no introduction, I hope. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it's very much what you would expect from that title. It is Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol featuring the cast of the Muppets. But most importantly, in my opinion, it features Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge in what might well be one of the best dramatic performances ever committed to film. Because, yeah, Michael Caine is magnificent in this film. He's so good. And, yeah, it's just delightful. Uh, God, I feel like the story is so famous. Do I even need to explain it? (laughs) You can explain certain characters and who they play. I'll I'll give a very brief potted summary. So, basically, Ebenezer Scrooge is a mean old man who runs a business and he doesn't let his workers have any time off and he underpays them and he's just a nasty piece of work and everyone knows it. And he's wasted his life, essentially, by being such a miser. And then on Christmas Eve, he gets a visit from three different ghosts, the ghost of the past, the ghost of the present, and the ghost of the future. And they basically show him his past mistakes, the consequences of his actions in the present, and what might become of him in the future if he doesn't change his ways. And spoiler alert, he does change his ways and he becomes a (laughs) nice man at the end of the film. Yeah, it's a very famous story, but it's a really beautiful, resonant story. And... Yeah, it also has the Muppets in it, which is very charming. So I've got to be honest and admit something awful about myself. I'm not a huge fan of the Muppets, <gasps> which is very controversial. I know, I know, I know. It's, like, it's the same reaction I get when I tell people I'm not a big fan of Aardman or Wallace and Gromit. I just don't care for them. Oh my um, god, what? I didn't yep. know that one. Nope, I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I think part of it is because of the episode of Wallace and Gromit where there's the bloody penguin <laughs> and the penguin and the penguin just freaked me out so much that I just cannot stand the style. It, it genuinely freaks me out. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I'm not a huge fan of the Muppets, but I also don't mind them. You know, like I'm not like Muppets. So there, I'm watching this and I just feel swept away by the charm of it and the Christmassy nature of it. And it's all lovely. And the Muppets did not annoy me, so that is good. Well, that's... Sorry! You know what? Have suddenly, I shocked you, Liam? <laughs> suddenly, me taking the piss out of cat people for the last 12 months doesn't feel so bad. <laughs> yep. No, but honestly, I do like the film, so I'm not, like, like savaging the film like you yeah. savaged cat people. <laughs> I do genuinely enjoy it and think it's a good film. I'm just not, in a general sense, a huge fan of the Muppets. Like, and I love the work of Jim Henson's. Like, mm. I love the Doc Crystal. I love Labyrinth. I love the creatures in those films. It's just something about the Muppety style and the type of comedy that doesn't work for me particularly well. But that's a really personal thing, you know, yeah. because humor is so individual. So yeah, don't bash me for just having a different opinion of you on, from you of, of the Muppets. Oh, I, I'm sorry. First of all, you come for the Muppets. Second of all, you came for Timon and Pumbaa. We've not even touched on that. I was oh, going to bring that up in the intro. But you came for Timon and Pumper, but to go for Wallace and Gromit as well. It's like I I've, I've just don't know you, Rach. I'm just destroying all your idols, Liam. Like, no, like no. demolishing your childhood. <laughs> no, you're demolishing the friendship, Rachel, damn it. Uh, oh, God, no, that's too important to me. I actually love the Muppets. I love them. You take that back about Hardman. The Penguin's the greatest villain ever. Um, <laughs> 
No. So um, going on to what you said at the start with Michael Caine, he gives one of the best dramatic performances ever. I do believe I did have the quote written down, but it's not here at the minute. He said that he was going to approach this as though he was working with the Royal Shakespeare Company. He wouldn't. And it shows. Yeah, he wouldn't break the fourth wall. He wouldn't give a little sly wink and a nod and a nose touch or anything like that. He just treated it as though everyone was an actor, including the Muppets. And I think that is why the film works so well. Because I am a fan of the Muppets, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Um, I have seen every single Muppet film that's ever been made. And they are of varying quality. Some of the TV movies are really charming. And some of the TV movies are hideously terrible. And with the feature films, you have the very good, which is Treasure Island... Christmas Carol and the remake done by Jason Siegel and then you have the very bad which is Ricky Gervais and that's because Ricky Gervais didn't fully commit to it whereas Jason Siegel understands what the Muppets are and how you're meant to present yourself to the Muppets and Tim Curry is just fab and will do anything <laughs> that he wants because he's clearly like this is going to be the best thing ever let's go but Michael Caine approached it as right I've got to be the villain, I've got to be Ebenezer Scrooge, these are my actors, let's go. (laughs) And yeah, his redemption arc works so, so well, because he's got that genuine humility to him as well. And there's a bit I want to touch on, because it's not put in every version of the film. So there is a song called When Love Is Gone, and... That features him and the woman he falls in love with when he's younger, called Belle. Mm. So this is where Ebenezer Scrooge becomes Ebenezer Scrooge. They meet at Mr. Fozzywig's party, which should be Fezziwig, but it's Fozzy. um, And he runs a rubber chicken factory, because of course he does. And Scrooge is introduced to Belle. And it's touched on that Scrooge is very meticulous about money at this point. But he sees Belle and he's like, heart eyes. Oh my word, this woman is amazing. But then they have, it transitions to this discussion that they have. And the song is called When Love Is Gone. And it's Belle singing about how the love between her and Scrooge is gone because he cares more about the money than he does about Belle. And Scrooge's elder self is quite upset watching this back. And that is part of the redemption arc. The problem is, they cut this out of a lot of versions of The Muppets Christmas Carol. Because the people that made the film said the song was too sad. So they have what's the mini argument, the song's missing, and it cuts to Gonzo, uh, who's Charles Dickens, and Rizzo, who's a Greek chorus, crying. And you don't really understand why. It wasn't in the theatrical cut. But it was in the VHS cut that my mum bought for us for Christmas 1993. So it was in there, and I never cried as a kid watching it, I don't think. Would have to confirm with my mother on that one. But it adds weight to the film, and it explains the bit at the end where they're singing. Because it's you know a reprise, but the lyrics are changed. And for me, having that missing from the film, really quite disappointing. Because it's sad, yes, but it's ultimately why you're happy that Scrooge has changed so much by the end of the film. And it's why he's starting to feel regret 
when the ghost of Christmas present is disappearing. And yeah, I feel like that's it's the most important part of the film. And they cut it out. It's it's always frustrating me. I don't know if it's on the version that you watched. Uh, yeah, I watched it on Disney Plus, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that scene was included. I just checked, and it seems to be that it's in the extras um, on Disney Plus. Pretty fundamental part of the film that was just ripped out there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the the bigwig said, "Oh no, that'll be too sad for children," not realizing that it kind of was the point that it had to be that sad for it to be that happy at the end. But, I'm sure they realised they probably just didn't care. Well, they can't They can't do it for any future releases because Disney have lost the negatives. Oh, the that's sad. So they're, they're like, oh my god, what have we done? So what other aspects of the film did you really enjoy? Yeah, just like the whole vibe, you know, and it's just the story, I think, you know, and obviously a big part of the credit for that goes to Charles Dickens because it's just such a good story. <laughs> But yeah, there's just something really beautiful about seeing that change of heart and the way that it feels organic and believable. Like, it's such a leap, you know, to go from, like, the meanest, most selfish and horrible person in the whole town to, um, like, someone who's selfless, basically. And especially to make that believable in a film where the vast majority of the roles are performed by puppets. (laughs) You know, the fact that it still has, like, emotional truth and heart, like, in that context, I think that's quite amazing. And obviously I know a big part of the appeal of the Muppets is that there is quite a lot of heartfelt stuff going on. You know, like Kermit's just a big old softie, isn't he? Mm. So yeah, like it's not that the Muppets are devoid of genuine feeling. But I think to win over someone like me, who's not particularly attached to the Muppets and make me buy it, I think that indicates a real strength in the film. Yeah. What did you make of uh, Gonzo and Rizzo being the sort of the centre storytellers of the film? (laughs) I thought they were cute. I liked them. Um, obviously, it's ridiculous, like Charles Dickens being like a bloody muppet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But um, yeah, no, it worked. You know, like, and it was good because it offered like these little comedic breakaways. Mm. I think from a story that can be quite like heavy, have a lot of weight to it. So I think it helped to give it like some much needed levity essentially you know into um like also make it much more accessible for children you know because i could see like a child struggling if it was mainly michael kane you know and they like break that stuff up i think that's why this film for me is it's much more of a accessible family film because you do have the christmas carol story running through it which is what i would say the adults are watching it for but you do have the comedic moments like Rizzo the rat getting his tail caught on fire as they're lighting a lamp and uh, he falls into an ice bucket later on. And Charles Dickens has to smash him to get him out of the ice. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, or the bit where they, uh, they climb the gate to see uh, Scrooge in school and uh, they discover that Rizzo the rat could have actually just dug underneath it. <laughs> and they're like, you could have dug underneath it all that time. Because you're such an idiot. <laughs> they did all this climbing. I think that's what keeps the kids sort of engaged because they're watching it for the funny little rat falling into the ice bucket and seeing Tiny Tim and all the songs are fantastic. Whereas when you've got things like... Now, I don't want to dunk on other Christmas Carol films seeing that it's Christmas and a lot of people watch these films. But you had like the Patrick Stewart version. And Patrick Stewart's a fantastic actor, but it really hinges on everyone being involved 
like watching the story and the Jim Carrey one where he plays about 18 million people in the same film. Um, oh, it's not like the creepy like mocap one where yeah, it's all like it, CGI. It's really yeah. strange. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, it, it's an okay film, but it's not really a, a family film. I, I would say it's not a, a passion project for him or anything like that, whereas Michael Caine was there, okay, I'm going to act as though this is a normal version of A Christmas Carol, which is why it's so engaging, and he really, really goes for it. But yeah, having the Muppets there is the sort of kid side of things, but they're making it a heavy, heavy story accessible for kids in the same way that Sesame Street would approach really tough subjects such as homelessness or anything like that and they approach it in this way that kids will understand it and i feel like because that's also jim henson isn't it sesame yeah. street yeah um no, 100%. yeah so uh the way they approach everything is okay kids here are some heavy themes but look look at the silly rat as well but then here's the heavy themes. But look at the silly thing over here. So <laughs> it, it doesn't like drain them through the film. Yeah, my attachment to this film is that because it was the one film that my family could agree on watching every year. <laughs> Do you have quite different tastes in film we in have your family? Wildly different tastes <laughs> in my family. Oh my um, god, I love it. When I was mentioning uh, Tokyo Godfathers the other night, the look of shock and or horror on the face of my wife and mother as I was explaining it. (laughs) (laughs) Was this before or after you'd seen it? This was pretty much just before the highly stressful moment in the film where I was saying I was absolutely adoring this film and that was before I realised that there was still 15 minutes to go and I was like, this is such a happy film, this is great. But yeah, we have wildly different tastes including like my younger siblings as well. My sister being a massive fan of 28 Days Later in her teenage years. Nice. (laughs) That's a cool film, uh, Much to the shock of other kids her age uh, (laughs) that she tried to show the film to one day, I might have been told off. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, this is the one film that we would agree on, and therefore it became a staple every single year, every single christmas eve that we watched films and i do believe my brother still does with his children oh that's so nice he still watches it on christmas eve because of the song there's only one more sleep till christmas and he says that that to him is the moment where it is christmas oh that's so so, nice yeah that's what he said now he may uh if he does listen to this which i don't think he does but if he does listen to this he's gonna be like i'm gonna kill you now you dick (laughs) (laughs) stop sharing all my personal secrets (laughs) stop sharing all my personal sides so and i think it's it's one i want to pick up for my family later on as well maybe not so much my wife who is drastically not a fan of musicals but she said oh god when arthur is going to be of that age you're gonna to have to reintroduce me to all these things because i'm not gonna have a clue Madame de shan <laughs> nice that's where you're coming to your own liam yeah exactly but yeah just touching on some of the other things i love the little visual gags that you have in muppet films as well all the characters, I think, are playing the most perfect roles. Like, you could buy Kermit the Frog being Bob Cratchit, but you wouldn't be able to have him as, say, Jacob Marley. The whole reason... 
right. The whole reason I just laughed at that point was because I can never remember the two old Muppets whose names evade me at this precise moment in time. But they're playing Jacob Marley, but not just Jacob Marley. For years, I thought there were two Marley brothers, not realising that the character Robert Marley was a play on Bob Marley. <laughs> Absolute years. I and that's news to me as well, so you're passing it on, yeah. Liam. So for years, I thought there were two Marley brothers in the book. I wonder why there was only ever Jacob Marley in every other thing. But where's Robert Marley? Where is Robert Marley? <laughs> Come on, Dickens, where are you hiding him? <laughs> Little insight into how thick I was as a child. Um, oh, no, not thick. Yeah, um, those little gags as well, I think it just fills me with this sort of joy. Uh, and I still do like watching it as an adult. Uh, it is in my top 100 films of all time. It is the only Christmas film in my top 100 films of all time. <laughs> For me, it's the perfect Christmas film. It's one that you really would only really watch at Christmas. Yes. It, it's just the the amount of joy that it brings. And, and that's where I want to end it on. So if you wanted to add anything else... No, I, I feel that's a pretty good summation. I'd say I feel it's certainly the best telling of this story because obviously there's dozens and dozens of versions of A Christmas Carol. It must be one of the most adapted stories like, ever told, basically. Um, but yeah, like, I struggle to think of like, a better Ebenezer Scrooge than Michael Caine or just like a better overall take on the story. So I think especially the songs. The songs really make it for me. It's really beautiful. They just like put this warm fuzzy feeling in my cold cold heart and yeah I loved it. <laughs> so yeah i strongly recommend the film i suppose that's it really normally i would do a quiz at this stage but i haven't prepared one so oh thank god um... <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's only because i always do really badly in these quizzes and it's just humiliating and i'm just like no i think it's nice also for a christmas one because Christmas isn't about being competitive. It's all about coming together and... You have clearly never played Monopoly at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I've never played Monopoly at Christmas, so we're clearly missing something. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the family fallout is what you're missing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm glad to not have that in my life. I don't need stress on Christmas. No, no. So I guess that's it. I mean, all that's really left to say is uh, have a merry and safe Christmas you rachel i hope that for as many people listening as possible that is also possible for them and that they get to be with their loved ones and have a lovely christmas because we all need it after an awful year yes so yeah merry christmas everyone yes merry christmas and uh, merry christmas to our co-host that isn't with us at the moment hope that you also have a safe christmas to all our listeners thank you very much have a wonderful christmas i do want to give one special shout out before we go now I brought up some analytics the other day, which I showed you and Charlie. And there is one person who I can't figure out who it is. So please, please, please do get in touch either on Twitter or via Spotify or however that works. Do get in touch. There is a person out in Thailand that has listened to every single episode of the Paradise City podcast. Oh, wow. Repping Thailand on their own. (laughs) They've made Thailand the country with the third most listeners after <laughs> the amazing. UK and the US. So <laughs> go you. You do you. You're fantastic. And thank you very much for listening. And thank you to everybody else. 
This has been the selection series on the Paradise City podcast. So until next time, have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Bye. Bye.